Welcome everyone to this month's BJJ podcast. I am Andrew Duckworth and a warm welcome to our podcast for the month of November from the Bone and Joint Journal. It is now a year since our very first podcast and from all the team we would like to thank our readers and listeners for the comments and support we've received so far for our series, as well as to our many authors and guest interviewers who have taken part so far. In the past year we've covered a range of topics and we've heard from a range of authors from across the globe. We've spoken to guests all the way from the US to India, including a fascinating dialogue between Ian Murray and Dr. Scott Rodeo on cell therapies and orthopedic surgery, as well as a really excellent discussion between Sam Patton and Professor AJ Puri from Mumbai about his paper on near-adjuvant denosumab in giant cell tumors. Through this, along with a series of podcasts that accompanied our supplements for the American Hip and Knee Society closed meetings, we do hope these are improving the accessibility and visibilities of the studies we publish for both you as our readers, as well as for our many authors. So moving on to this month's study, as you know, over the next 15 to 20 minutes or so, we'll cover a range of topics uh, and aspects of the chosen work, emphasizing the important points of how the study's been designed, as well as the key findings from the data and how these potentially fit into each of your day-to-day practices. We also hope to give you a behind-the-scenes insight into how the authors have developed the study and give them an opportunity to put forward the key findings of their work. So today, I have the absolute pleasure of being joined by one of my editorial boy colleagues here at the BJJ, Dr. Matt Abdul, who joins us from the world-renowned Mayo Clinic in Rochester, USA, to discuss his study entitled Reliable Outcomes and Survivorship of Primary Total Knee Arthroplasty for Osteonecrosis of the Knee, which will be published in the November edition of the BJJ. Welcome, Matt, and a big thank you for taking the time to join us today. Well, Andrew, thank you for the warm welcome, and thank you to the journal for allowing us the opportunity to do this podcast on our article it's uh, exciting, and I do think these podcasts provide a large amount of information, information accessibility to the readership and actually the larger orthopedic audience. Thanks very much, Matt. That's really, really good to hear. So if we move straight onto your paper, Matt, as you nicely described, neosteonecrosis develops from a disruptive vascular supply causing periarticular bone and cartilage loss, which in the advanced stages, the stages will mainly to joint degeneration and destruction. And you state that total knee replacement or arthroplasty for this condition has traditionally been associated with likely suboptimal results. So with this in mind, can you give us a brief background to the the paper? And in particular, what we know from the current literature about the role of TKA for this condition? Yeah, you've highlighted some of the main points nicely, Andrew. We know that knee osteonecrosis in both primary and secondary situations can lead to degenerative joint disease. This can be profound for patients. It can have debilitating pain, inability to ambulate an exponential increase in their degeneration. Typically, total knee arthroplasty has been associated with poor results, and those are results in regards to survivorship, high rates of aseptic loosening, poor clinical outcomes, and a high rate of complications, namely periprosthetic joint infection and manipulation or anesthesia. And we asked in our study, with contemporary knee arthroplasty, including the adjuvant use of metaphyseal fixation, such as cones, or even some proximal diaphyseal engaging cemented stems, would the results be better in three main areas? That is survivorship, primarily free of aseptic loosening, free of any revision, and free of any reoperation. Clinical outcomes, namely knee society scores, because that's what we capture the Mayo Clinic Total Joint Registry longitudinally since uh, the inception really of the registry. Mm-hmm. And how were the radiologic results? And that was kind of the impetus to the study uh, that we move forward with. That's great, Matt. And that, I think that's a, a nice way to, to explain the sort of potential holes in the literature and how this study was going to add to it and the, and the primary aims of it. So if we, if we move on to the study itself, this was obviously a retrospective review of, of all patients who underwent a primary TKA for neosteonecrosis at your institution 
over a 10-year period, and that was from 2004 to 2014. Uh, you initially identified 173 knee replacements in 161 patients for primary or secondary knee osteonecrosis. Uh, and that comprised just over 1%, amazingly, of the, the primary TKAs yep. for institution over this time period of the study. Um, so with that in mind, obviously, it's a large volume center map. Could you just give us like a brief overview of, of the routine assessment you've alluded to already, the follow-up assessment of these type of patients in your institution? Yeah, you've highlighted some of the big points. Just to reiterate, this is a small patient population. This is 1% of all primary total knee arthroplasties done at the Mayo Clinic. And this is total knee arthroplasty. We've independently published on unicompartmental knee arthroplasty for osteonecrosis. So this is truly primary total knee arthroplasties for osteonecrosis. But two-thirds of these patients were primary osteonecrosis, and about one-third were secondary osteonecrosis, mostly steroid-induced versus idiopathic. And uh, our follow-up routine is uh, we see people, we call them at two and five weeks via the phone. We see them at three months, one year, two year, five years, and every five years thereafter. And so the capture is robust. And when we're seeing these patients in follow-up, we're obtaining clinical outcome scores, radiographs, and of course, having their clinical follow-up. So we have a large amount of information and a great capture for these patients. Yeah, that's 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 amazing, Matt. And I think in terms of the the, the fact that you're seeing them, not just you know sending out outcomes scores or whatever, you're actually seeing them at those uh, date, those time points is amazing. And and in terms of sort of related to that, I suppose what for this study itself, what was your follow up like and retention like for the patients? Yeah, so uh, you know there were some people that were lost to follow up secondary to death. There were some patients that had early re revisions or re operations uh, less than two years. But uh, greater than 90% of the patients had greater than two years of follow-up and were living greater than two years. So that's kind of my cutoff as follow-up. So we had excellent follow-up in this cohort. Yeah, definitely. I, I completely agree. And in terms of if we move on to sort of the, the, the I suppose, the technique and the indications itself, what, 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 what were those over the study period? I suppose what would also be important to discuss with the sort of the implants and the protocol used during the study period? That's a great question, Andrew. So uh, we treat these patients from regards to indications just like any other knee arthroplasty patient. They have to have failed conservative management, debilitating daily pain that is impacting their activities of daily living. And so that's very important to us. I will make a side note that most of these diagnoses were made on radiographs, not advanced imaging. That's something that often comes up when we discuss this paper. And once patients have truly failed conservative management, we then proceeded with total knee arthroplasty. Our routine at the Mayo Clinic during this time period and continues to, the, to this date is uh, primary posterior stabilized total knee arthroplasty. That's cemented, which 88% of patients in this series received, so the vast majority. We, our workflow is traditionally, and as you might anticipate in North America, to resurface the patella. So the large number of patients in this series had their patella resurfaced. And then the nuanced part of this was whether or not fixation was utilized with a cemented stem. And that was utilized on a case-by-case basis, the decision made by the operative surgeon. And I can tell you my personal workflow is not to use a tourniquet in these cases, evaluate the bone, see if the cancellous bone is bleeding. If it is, and I feel like I've got robust bone quality in addition to quantity, I may not use a stem. If there's any concern at all that comes into my mind, I will utilize a short stem usually something that's anywhere from 50 to 100 millimeters. 
Okay. Okay. That's really, that's brilliant, Matt. I think it's very clear in terms of the indications of the patients you've included. Just, just briefly going back to that point, Matt, in terms of you, you said, just, just to clarify, not many of these patients had MRIs. Is that right? It wasn't routine to have, for them all to have them. Yeah. So it was very rare. In fact, it was a diagnosis made on radiographs. And I think we can't forget that the uh, series span a large time span, including a span in which MRI, even CT, was not commonly utilized uh, in practice. And so uh, we've utilized it. Since our indication was degenerative joint disease secondary to osteonecrosis, we still made most of the diagnosis for knee arthroplasty based on radiographs. Absolutely. That makes, that makes total sense. So if we go on to this, just before we get onto the results, I suppose one of the, uh, it's always just good for our listeners just to briefly lay out the, the analysis you performed, which I suppose is really uh, related to the reg- regression analysis. Can you just talk about that briefly, Matt? Yeah, we used uh, two main analyses a year. The first one was the Kaplan-Meier survivorship. And uh, really you could use a Kaplan-Meier survivorship curve, or we could utilize a competing risk with the competing risk being death. So many of these patients uh, survived, and so we didn't feel that it would be beneficial to have a competing risk analysis. So we utilized Kaplan-Meier survivorship curve, looking at survivorship free from aseptic loosening, survivorship free from any revision, and survivorship free from any reoperation. Yeah. Then we did a Cox regression analysis, <clears throat> excuse me, and that was helpful for us to look at hazard ratios and look at possible factors that might indicate failure. And we'll talk about that in the results section, but those were the two main analyses we utilized in the series. That's great, man. That's a really nice summary. So if we'd move on to the results then, so to just reiterate to our listeners, I know we're repeating ourselves a bit here, but just there were 156 patients, there were of which 167 had TKAs in the analysis. The mean follow-up from surgery was six years. The range was two to 12, so very good. And again, the main outcomes that you mentioned earlier, so virus-free from aseptic loosening, revision, or reoperation, the second being complications, and then finally it was clinical and radiological outcomes. So Matt, if you can just detail the kind of findings, I suppose in probably the, the key one really in relation to survivorship and what those analyses show when looking for risk factors for failure. Yeah, that's uh, well, well, very well summarized as always, Andrew. So I think the, like you said, we had three main buckets, survivorship, clinical outcomes, and radiologic outcomes. And the key one to the surgical audience who we're talking to uh, today is survivorship free of aseptic loosening. And this is traditionally the outcome that had done poor in other series. And we looked at survivorship free of aseptic loosening at 10 years. So this is not short-term follow-up. This is a decade. And uh, that's when I kind of, in my mind, consider that beginning to be long-term follow-up. And that survivorship free of aseptic loosening at 10 years was remarkable. It was 97%. Mm. So, I mean, those are numbers that compete with the most routine run-of-the-mill osteoarthritis with excellent implants and excellent surgeons. Absolutely. We then... We then secondarily looked at 10-year survivorship free of any revision. Now, that's important because any revision, of course, includes periprosthetic joint infection, for, for instance, because you have implant removal. And that was 93%. And as I alluded to, there is the usual 1% or 2% of uh, infection that occur. And that's why that rate's a little lower than free of aseptic loosening. Mm. And then we looked at survivorship free of any reoperation, which I personally think is important because any reoperation includes... Anytime you open up the knee, but you may not exchange implants, i.e. wound dehiscence, stitch abscesses, things of this nature. And that was 82%. So lower, but we can't forget that most of those reoperations are quite minor. Yeah. The take home here is that the survivorship free of aseptic loosening at 10 years was 97%. Which is, like you say, it's, it's, it's remarkable comparable to just routine joint arthroplasty, as you say. So 
With it, but with regards to the complication profile in these in these patients, Matt, did you did you find anything different there or anything uh, anything untowards? You know, I think Andrew, the thing that popped out to me uh, to just kind of go directly, if someone's listening to this and they're going to be taking care of a patient, is they had a higher than expected manipulation under anesthesia rate. Hmm. That was the main complication that came out with this. And when I define complication, I define it as something that wasn't a reoperation, revision, or boosting above. And so that rate was almost four to five percent. And so it's important to be cognizant about surgical technique, component positioning, implant design, but most importantly, be cognizant in how you counsel your patients and how you post-operatively manage these patients. So this is a subset of patients that I'll see more frequently to ensure that their motion is on track. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. And do you think that, Matt, is that because you think it's related to the primary condition, I suppose, or are these patients slightly younger? Or is there anything in particular you, you feel from either from the data or from your practice about that, why that is? I think it's threefold. I think one, in general, this is a younger patient population. We know that's a higher risk yeah. for uh, manipulation or anesthesia. Number two, I do think there's something with the pathologic process and the pathogenesis of osteonecrosis that impacts the synovial membrane in addition to the chemokines and cytokines that arrive in the knee that may mm-hmm. contribute to it. And I think finally, a lot of these patients are so debilitated that the perineal musculature becomes yes. quite contracted. That mm. it just takes a little more time to loosen up the soft tissue envelope, if I may say it that way, surrounding the knee after the arthroplasty is done. Yeah, that makes sense. That really makes sense. That's interesting. And just just before we actually move on from from onto the sort of clinical and radiological outcomes. Was there any factors you did find in terms of that were increased risk of, 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 of revision? It was interesting. We uh, went through an, uh, an extensive analysis using the Cox regression analysis and did not find any real significant factors that predicted failure. And that's probably because it's rather homogeneous population of individuals yeah. that developed this very nuanced and quite unique pathologic process of primary or secondary osteonecrosis. That's interesting. That's interesting. So if I we think, go- Andrew, sorry, sorry. I, think, I think, you know, what happens is that the process of osteonecrosis overpowers any other factor mm. yeah. that we were unable to see other factors as contributing to failure. Yeah, it just overwhelms everything else. You mean, yeah, yeah. absolutely, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, but it, it, just to clarify, though, you you didn't find a difference between primary versus secondary, though, did you? Either that was that was part of the analysis. That's correct. That was a gr- that's a great question. Yeah. So we did look at that. Now we have to keep in mind that two thirds of the patients were primary, one third were secondary osteonecrosis, and mm-hmm. within the secondary osteonecrosis, there were a variety of etiologies that contributed to that. But you're right. In regards to survivorship, we found no difference at all between those patients that had a need for primary versus those had a total need for secondary osteoporosis. That's interesting. Well, we can obviously come on to that in a bit when we discuss why that is and how that compares to literature. But just before we move on to that, I suppose, is what did you find in terms of, I suppose, the clinical outcomes and the knee side scores and the radiological outcomes finally, Matt? Yeah, for uh, knee society scores, we found that patients went from a mean of 57 preoperative to 91 postoperative, mm-hmm. both in themselves uh, impressive numbers, very low preop and yeah. very high in the 90s postop. And that's that most recent follow-up. And that was statistically significant. I would also say that's clinically significant, a jump like that of nearly 40 points. Definitely. And at most recent follow-up, we had no radiographic evidence of loosening in any patient that had yet to be revised. So there were no impending failures based upon radiographic criteria of impending loosening. Uh, the last follow-up, yeah, that's, that's, yep. that's interesting. So uh, 
that's great, Matt. So if we sort of move on, I suppose, to the implications of the work, Matt, the strengths are, you know, I think without question, it's, you know, it's a, it's a large contemporary study of cemented TK for the osteoporosis. It's from a very high volume center. And, and as we've already discussed, the, the, the outcomes and the follow-up are, are excellent and the retention is, is, is really, I think, remarkable. But Matt, what, what do you feel are the, the key findings of the work, I suppose, in the context of any potential limitations of, of the data? Yeah, my, my key finding take home and, and what I say is when you go back to your practice and you see the next patient with primary or secondary osteonecrosis who has joint degeneration that's failed conservative management, you should not be hesitant to proceed with total knee arthroplasty if they fail conservative management, the radiograph showed joint degeneration. Mm. In contemporary series with contemporary implants in high, the hands of high volume surgeons, these patients do extremely well have significant improvement in the clinical outcomes, and have 10 years survivorship free of aseptic loosening that competes with any other routine osteoarthritis. So I do not think that this is a contraindication for total knee arthroplasty. Yeah. The second thing, and I think, you know, traditionally surgeons have been apprehensive on proceeding with total knee arthroplasty in this subset of patients concerned about aseptic loosening. The second thing I always say, and I, I learned from this paper in uh, looking at the data, writing the paper, editing the paper, is that if you think you need adjuvant fixation with a cemented stem, proceed with that. In contemporary implant design, it is minimal and incremental time. There's mm. minimal bone that you have to remove, and it does give us the protection if there's poor bone quality for long-term implant fixation. Yeah. And finally, my kind of third take home from this is be cognizant about manipulation under anesthesia and the limited motion that these patients may have postoperatively. Mm. And so if you use any new adjuvant treatments, if you want to follow these patients closer, if you want to have a lower threshold for manipulation under anesthesia, just be cognizant about it. And you should set the expectation preoperatively that this is one of the most common complications after this procedure in this subset of patients. That's fantastic, man. That's a really, really, really clear three messages uh, from from the data, very much supported by it as well. But if we just move on to, suppose, Matt, just briefly about a limitation, could it be argued, you know, obviously the Mayo Clinic, it's a very high volume center. It's a very, um, very, uh, a lot of expertise there. Could that potentially be perceived as a limitation of it in terms of, is it, is it does it have to be high volume surgeons or high experienced surgeons who are doing this, do you think? Uh, I don't. I don't think so, but yeah. we all are aware of the data on uh, volume and complication profiles. Yeah. So I yeah. think that's unrelated to this particular topic, but more related to knee arthroplasty in a bigger perspective. So clearly, if there's any concern or you're uncomfortable with having to incrementally use additional fixation, then maybe the patient should be referred. I think, you know, yeah. in this series, it spanned a time period that included a number of surgeons from the Mayo Clinic. Mm -hmm. And so that in itself almost takes care, even though it's from a high volume institution with the majority of surgeons being high volume, mm. we do uh, have a number of surgeons that uh, participated in this series. So it mitigates that with a heterogeneous number of surgeons who participate in the care of these patients. Sure, sure. No, that, that makes sense. And I suppose as well, what, what you're sort of saying is that the condition itself doesn't preclude people from doing it as long as their volume is, is, is reasonable. Is it, Correct. With that, yeah, absolutely. Yep. So in terms of looking at the previous literature then, how, how do you feel that your results fit into that, Matt? And particularly with, I suppose, regards we've alluded to already in terms of implant design, and as we've already said, comparing it to routine TK for osteoarthritis. Well, this series uh, seems to indicate it better than a historical series. 
There are uh, a couple of more recent series that have shown contemporary results have done much better in patients with knee osteonecrosis. But this is, I think, the largest that I'm aware of, unless anything's changed recently, with this length of follow-up and this completeness of follow-up showing with contemporary implant designs, contemporary surgical techniques, and contemporary perioperative management of these patients, the results compete with knee osteoarthritis. And it does seem to be better in regards to survivorship, free of the numerous endpoints I noted before, mm. better in regards to clinical outcomes. And, you know, to date, knock on wood, our radiographic evidence of loosening is zero in those who aren't revised. So great results in regards to the radiographic parameters. So we are moving in the right direction compared to historical series. Absolutely. absolutely. And in terms of if we just, we just briefly go back to what we meant, alluded to before, um, how does your study compare in terms of to previous data when we, what we discussed earlier about the, the indication for it, whether it's primary or secondary osteonecrosis? Because there, there is a slight difference there, isn't there? Yeah, you know, previous series had shown a difference between primary and secondary osteonecrosis, and I thought that would be the same for a variety of reasons, that if it was a primary osteonecrosis, uh, we, there was more of a pathologic process. If it was secondary, it might be temporal related to the external environmental factor that, for instance, corticosteroids that might have been used for A, B, or C, other pathology. And uh, in this series, throughout the entire analysis, we found absolutely no difference whether it was primary, secondary, and the cause of secondary. So in my mind, in contemporary practice, I lump them together when I'm yeah. treating them. Yeah. And I look for the same indications. You fail conservative management and you have radiographic evidence of joint degeneration. In my mind, regardless of primary, secondary, I treat you the same you have the same potential outcomes in regards to the parameters we've discussed. That's brilliant, Matt. That's great. Well, Matt, I, th I think that's actually all we have time for. We're running out of time there. But thank you so much for joining us, Matt, and congratulations on, a, on an excellent study. That is, without doubt, a real invaluable addition to the literature in this area. So thanks for joining us, Matt. Yeah, thank you very much, Andrew. Greatly and appreciate it. Not at all. And to our listeners, we do hope you've enjoyed joining us, and we encourage you to share your thoughts and comments through Twitter, Facebook, and a like. And feel free to post a tweet about anything we've discussed here today. And thanks again for joining us.